We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Guys, can you believe it? I have actually made it to a urgent education this week. Saturday, I got a little obsessed with my website. I decided to bundle all of my courses into one um, price, uh, business courses and marriage courses, 97 bucks, you get four. Well, to get all that transferred, it took a little bit longer than I thought. And then about 10 o'clock at night, I'm like, I forgot urgent education. So here we are. Um, I want to talk about something that a lot of people may not pay a lot of attention to, but it is one of the main reasons we are in the state that we are in as a country. And so when I say in the state we are in, I am referring to um, regulation. I am referring to debt. I am referring to all these alphabet agencies, and I am referring to a loss of a lot of freedoms that we we just don't have anymore because we don't know what the Constitution says. Uh, and quite frankly, people try to make it sound like it's this big mystery, and it's not. Now, I did have to look up one word, though, last night when I was studying, but we've got dictionary.com. You know, it doesn't take much much work. But I want to talk about the general welfare clause. And don't think it's a boring topic. Again, it is, um, number one, astonishing how fast we went downhill. And it is astonishing how something that seems so insignificant and even boring to read has caused so much havoc. Um, all governments have been using this clause exactly how James Madison feared. And that is expand the government beyond their proper um, power. So just a quick recap. The states were formed first, July 2nd of, um, oh goodness, uh, 1776, led by Richard Henry Lee. And they did a what's called the Lee Resolution, which uh, severed ties with Britain and transferred the states or the colonies now into the states of the Union or the United States of America. So the states were recognized as sovereign entities. 
The word state back in their day would refer to the state of England, the state of Germany, or the states within the United States. So they are like little countries that are sovereign. Um, but in order to preserve the union and make sure that states treat each other fairly, that there's fair commerce practices, and that we don't end up in a war against ourselves, they recognized, not everybody liked this idea, <coughs> excuse me, but they recognized that we had to have a central or federal government to handle foreign affairs and to make sure the states got along. And so the states then ratified, contributed to and ratified the, uh, it was a, a convention um Gosh, what was it called? It wasn't called the Constitution, but we had an initial document. And after a little bit of using this initial doc document, we realized it was too generalized. It wasn't helpful at all, and it didn't solve any of the problems. So they avoided that one. They got together again. And I believe in 1779, if I'm not mistaken, the Constitution of the United States was formed. Now, what this means is we, the people, make up the states. The states entered into a contract with federal government to do certain specific things, which I'm going to read to you out of the General Welfare Clause. So their power was enumerated, but also the federal government is a product of the states. So the order of power is supposed to be we the people, the states, the federal government. So the majority of life as we know it should be dictated by our state government, not the federal government. Okay, so that's just a brief history of how we, we came to have the, the federation or the constitution. The clauses in the constitution, which I read regularly, are not difficult to understand. And the General Welfare Clause is Section 8, uh, Article 1, Section 8. Article 1 defines the power that we decided to give to the, the, the Congress, both the House of Representatives and the Senate, which is the legislative uh, branch of our government. They're to make laws, but any law that does not... Um, go with our constitution, which is the supreme law of the land. That's the supremacy clause, which a lot of people will lie to you and say that proves that the federal government is supreme. No, the, the supreme law in the land is the constitution. If any local, state, or federal government makes any law contrary to the constitution without it being ratified, which is article five, which takes two thirds of the states, then it is null and void. That has been the um, Supreme Court's position, it's the Constitution's position, um, but because we don't know that, we have a lot of stuff out there that are not constitutional, like red flag laws, those are not constitutional. Um, I understand the purpose behind them, but they're not constitutional. Okay, so back to, oh, and I might have given you, um, oh no, no, I was right, okay. So here in um, Article 1, Section 8, and it's Clause 3, but I'm, I think I'm going to go ahead and read 
um, all of it so you could see exactly what we gave the government to do. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay debt and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Okay, so the purpose of collecting taxes was any debt we might owe or if we have to go to war. Okay, the general welfare, a lot of people will use that to say, oh, we can collect taxes to pay for other people to eat. We can collect taxes to pay for people's housing. That's not what that means. It then says they have the power to borrow money on the credit of the U.S., to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states with the Indian tribes. So, regulate commerce with foreign nations. Okay, so that's importing and exporting with foreign nations. But among the states, what was happening are some states didn't like other states, so they were doing unfair commerce practices, and it was causing a lot of uh, strife and conflict between the states. So they added this, that they can regulate. So if a state is being unfair to another state, let's say charging every other state in the union a specific price, but the one for a product, but the one that they don't like, they double it. That is an unfair commerce uh, uh, action. Or let's say they say, nah, you know, let's say New Mexico says, nah, Texas, we don't like you. So you can't go through our state to get your goods to your people. You have to go around us. Well, that would be considered an unfair practice. And the federal government can step in and say, no, we're not doing that. Okay. Uh, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the U.S., to coin money, to regulate the value of money and a foreign coin and fix the standard of weights and measures, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the U.S., to establish post offices and post roads, to, to, to promote the progress of science and useful arts, by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So what does that mean? That's patents and copyright laws right there. To constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. To define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations. To declare war, grant letters of marquee and reprisal and make rules concerning captures on land and war, which came very handy when we were fighting the pirates in Tripoli, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. Hmm, interesting. To provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government regulation of the land and naval forces, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions. I wish I had time to go into a militia and what that is. To provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and for governing each part of them as may be employed in the service, reserving to the state specifically the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. So what this means is each state each person was actually considered a militia. Each state was supposed to have a, a militia. In fact, some states 
made it illegal not to have a weapon as a private citizen. Um, and if you wanted to watch or listen on my podcast, We the Deplorables, to the um, the Second Amendment discussion we went through, you'll learn a lot about that in there. But this is not calling for an organized, on-ready military. It is saying that each state can have a militia, um, but they need to make sure that they're trained well so that we can fight against foreign invasion and tyranny. And then it says to uh, exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may by session of particular states and the exception of Congress become the seat of the government of the United States and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this constitution of the government of the United States or any in any department or office thereof. Okay, so a lot of people thought that that um, general welfare was too broad and there was a lot of argument going on. And so the belief of the founding fathers was that no state would give up their power and authority to a federal government that they would resist that and they would fight that. And that would be the balance against the government taking over everything. What some of the people foresaw is that money is a way to take over states. And in fact, I'm not sure why they didn't see this, those that supported the general welfare, welfare clause, um, although they did enumerate what it was for, um, but some, again, had a, a concern that it was too broad because we see in Britain's history the use of money to buy politicians, to buy judges, to basically take over a nation and eliminate the rights of the people. So states are bought by federal funding. In other words, if you don't teach critical race theory in this school, we'll, we'll pull your funding. They should have never been funding schools. They should have never been funding any of that. It's not even in there. So now, because states are so dependent on the federal government, states do not always stand up against uh, things that are contrary to the Constitution. So the federal government was to work on behalf of the states concerning foreign affairs. So in Federalist Paper 45, um, it's titled The Alleged Danger from the Powers of the Union to the State Governments, considered for the Independent Journal, Saturday, January 26, 1788. This is by Madison to the people of the state of New York. So the concern again is that they would have too much power. The federal government would have too much power. So he says, but if the union as has been shown, be essential to the security of the people of America against foreign danger, essential to their security against contentions and wars among the different states, essential to guard them against those violent and oppressive factions which embitter the blessings of liberty, such as BLM and Antifa, and against those military establishments which must gradually poison its very foundation, if, in a word, 
the union be essential to the happiness of the American people, is it not preposterous to urge as an objection to a government without which the objects of the union cannot be attained that such government may derogate from the importance of the governments of the individual states? So what is he saying? He's saying the word derogate means to stray in conduct and character. So what I wanted to point out is he's listing the enumerations or the powers given to the federal government, what I just read, okay? And he says that even if the federal government was to stray in conduct and character, the states would not put up with it. So he says, um, the American Revolution affected was the American Confederacy formed was a precious blood of thousands spilt and the hard-earned substance of millions lavished, not that the people of America should enjoy peace, liberty, and safety, but that the government of the United States, that particular municipal establishments, might enjoy a certain extent of power and be arrayed with certain dignities and attributes of sovereignty. We have heard of the impious doctrine in the old world that the people were made for the king, not the kings for the people. Is the same doctrine to be revived in the new, in another shape that the solid happiness of the people is to be sacrificed to the views of political institutions of a different form? So what he's saying that the European way of thinking is that the, the people exist for the government. In America, the government exists for the people. Uh, they are to do our will, not their own. So he's saying we have fought in such a way, and that should serve as a reminder to the federal government, plus the fact that Americans, the majority of them are armed, that if you try to take away our state's rights, we will have a repeat. Nowadays, I don't know if we will. Um, but anyway, uh, he also said the states will retain under the proposed constitution a very extensive portion of active sovereignty. The inference ought not to be wholly disregarded. The state's government, state governments may be regarded as constituent and essential parts of the federal government, while the latter is no wise essential to the operation or organization of the former. In other words, he's saying the states are essential parts of the federal government, but the federal government is not an essential part of the states, especially if they start interfering with states' rights in state legislature. And then he talks about how there's a lot more representatives, a lot more judges, a lot more politicians, a lot more people in the states, and that the federal government will never outnumber the people of the states and the people that are in charge of the states to where they can ever take over the people. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. He then says, there will consequently be less of personal influence on the side of the former than the latter. The members of the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments of 13 and more states, the justices of the peace, the officers of militia, ministerial officers of justice with all the county, corporation, and town officers for three millions or more of people intermixed and having particular acquaintance with every class and circle of people must exceed beyond all proportion both in number and influence those of every description who will be employed in the ad, ad, administration of the federal government. 
So he's talking about the size of the militia. There's no way the federal government would try to take us over because we have too many people, again, that are armed. The powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former, the federal government, will be exercised principally on external objects, wars, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which at last the power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all of the objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concerns the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. So he's saying the state, they have a lot of leeway to do what they feel is right as a state. The federal government, we have put their power in a compartment, and they are few and defined. The operations of the federal government will be most extensive and important in times of war and danger, those of the state in times of peace and security. The more adequate, indeed, the federal powers may be rendered to the national defense, the less frequent will be those scenes of danger which might favor their ascendancy over the governments of the particular states. In other words, we'll go to war if we have to, and that includes against our own government. Okay. So the states existed 13 years before the federal government uh, that we now see did today. Um, we didn't need the federal government to tell the states how to run the states. We were already running the states. They were designed for the external affairs. But in 1792, those in power were already trying to expand the government using this clause. Madison is emphasizing the purpose of the clauses because they're trying to put them in a context that they knew was incorrect. He said, there are terms familiar in their construction and well-known to the people of America. They are repeatedly found in the old Articles of Confederation where although they are susceptible of as great latitude as can be given them in the context here, it was never supposed or pretended that they conveyed any such powers as is now assigned to them. On the contrary, it was always considered as clear and certain that the old Congress was limited to the enumerated powers. He then goes on to say, in fact, the meaning of the general terms in question must either be sought in the subsequent enumerations, which limits and details them, which we've discussed, or they convert the government from one that is limited to the enumerated powers into a government without any limits at all. So they were already wanting to use the general welfare clause to expand their power. He was saying, okay, you know that's not what that means. In fact, I'm a founding father. We told you what it means. If you do this, you will now expand the government into one without any limits on their power. Are you willing to take that chance? Unfortunately, they were. They knew that by using the clause as they did, it would take off all limits. General welfare means that whatever you do must be done with all of the welfare in mind in treaties, war, and commerce. That is it. From this time forward, the federal government has used this clause to quote, Provide for the good of the people, housing, safety, etc. 
It's a bottomless pit. And they've now conditioned the people to take entitlements, which are not entitlements at all. Uh, they're, they're payoffs. But to take these uh, from the government so that the government becomes our God. The government becomes the one that dictates how we live our lives. Not our freedom and our rights that are inherent because of the creator. Um, I think this was also Madison. He said, sir, I have always conceived. I believe those who proposed the Constitution conceived. It is still fully known and more material to observe that those who ratified the Constitution conceived. All he's saying there is nothing is hidden. All of it is written out. We didn't hide any meanings. We didn't imply anything that was not specifically said. And not only that, but the Federalist Papers explains even more what the Founding Fathers thought as far as a federal government. And you can read the Anti-Federalist Papers for, and, and read the thoughts of those that thought it was a bad idea. So he's basically saying, you know what it says. You're just twisting the words to get your will done. He goes on to say that this is not an indefinite government deriving its powers from the general terms prefixed to the specific powers, but a limited government tied down to specific power. He also said with respect to the words general welfare, now this is a letter to James Robertson Jr. He said, I've always uh, regarded them as qualified by the detail of powers connected with them. To take them in a literal and unlimited sense would be a metamorphosis of the Constitution into a character which, quote, and in bold and emphasize, which there is a host of proofs, proofs was not contemplated by its creators. So he's saying, again, you know that's not what we meant. Okay? So then if they know that's not what he they meant, then that tells us that this was a power move. This was a power grab all the way. Just, I mean, 13 years is all it took. Thomas Jefferson in his letter of 1817 to Albert Gallatin, uh, he said it was absurd. It would be to propose the general welfare clause conveys a general and relatively unlimited power to Congress. He says, quote, and this, you know, is a federal doctrine that Congress had not unlimited powers to provide for the general welfare welfare, but were restrained to those specifically enumerated, and that as it was never meant they should provide for that welfare, but by the exercise of the enumerated power, so it could not have been meant that they should have raised money for purposes which the enumeration did not place under their action. Consequently, that the specific specification of powers is a limitation of the purposes for which they might raise money. So here's where a lot of times we get in trouble. Because we want to help people and we want to do good, we're like, oh, we need to help people that are less fortunate. Let's um, give them food stamps and then we'll just give them a helping hand till they can get back on their feet. Or, well, there's some people that they're having a rough time paying rent. Let's just give them some subsidies that can help them pay rent. Same thing with my, my health insurance. I was willing to pay my health insurance um, and was supposed to have paid. And then by the time I applied, Oh, no, we'll take care of it all. And like you literally have no no way to say, no, I don't want it all taken care of. I can take care of my my insurance, you know. So it's like the um, checks that went out in COVID. I got so tired of it. I'm like, stop. You're creating an environment where people are more dependent on the government. In fact, the last check, I'm like, I don't, I don't want any more. Let me open my business. Of course, I never 
closed it. But it's like, let me work. Let Just leave me alone. That's all I need you to do. Leave me alone. I don't want your money. But a lot of people take that money. And guess what? The way President Trump handled COVID was awful. By, and I love President Trump, but by sending out the money, so shutting everything down and sending out the money, it has created a nightmare for trying to hire people now, by the way. But the other thing is it added to inflation. So instead of people using that money on rent and food and things that it was intended for, instead it was used to buy things that people probably don't even need, like TVs and electronics and things like that. So it 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 put a lot of cash in the system. And then when Biden gets in with his horrible economic policies, we instantly go into an inflation, actually cutting the Keystone Pipeline deal and all that and raising gas prices was the kickoff. But all the cash-infused um, society that we, we created has caused the problems as well. Um, but according to the Constitution, that was not the government's responsibility. They should have never, not only did they not have the authority to shut us down because that's unlawful seizure, but they also did not have the authority to just give us a bunch of money, especially with us not asking for it. And I understand the, the behind the scenes, but you have... The reason the Constitution is here is knowing that for some people, it's a power play. For others, they want to help people. But both end up in the same place. So even as believers in God, you have to make sure that you are actually helping people, not making it worse. Like when kids get killed, I don't like to see kids get killed that by guns. But getting rid of guns is not the answer, because if you get rid of them, we'll be enslaved. So we have to use this document as the filter for all decisions in this country. So um, Edmund Randolph, explaining to Patrick Henry the General Welfare, Welfare Clause did not equate to general powers, said, but the general constitution, its powers are enumerated. Is it not then fairly deductible that it has no power, but what is expressly given it? For if its powers were to be general, an enumeration wouldn't be needed. But the rhetoric of the gentleman has highly colored the dangers of giving the general government an indefinite power of providing for the general welfare. I contend that no such power is given. So we're going to turn into a nanny state. And that's exactly what we've turned into. We are literally saying what our founding fathers feared. Okay, now the Commerce Clause. So don't think that gives the government the power to regulate commerce like it has been. Again, it is only to regulate foreign commerce and make sure states get along and their business transactions as well. That's it. They're not supposed to tell us uh, where we can drill. They're not supposed to tell us um, if we can have chickens in our um, yards, they're not supposed to tell us any of this. They're supposed to only regulate foreign and commerce between states. Now, if a city government by vote or a state by vote wants to regulate those things, that is to the people to vote at the ballot box, but it's not the job of the federal government. So it says to re regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. So they were, uh, again, only supposed to deal with that. The EPA, the FDA, the government of the interior, etc., are all unconstitutional. All of them. None of these have authority 
according to the Constitution. But people don't know that. I, one of my favorite stories, I think it was up in Wisconsin, there was a, a family dairy that kept getting messed with, and the EPA kept harassing them, the FBI kept harassing them, and finally the sheriff had enough of it. And he told the EPA and the FBI, if you guys keep harassing my citizen and his family, and if you show up in this county, I am going to arrest you. I will run you out of my county. The sheriff has more authority over any elected official, including the president, because he is the highest law elected uh, person in the land. And his job is actually to protect us based on the Constitution from any encroachment of those rights, even if it's our own government or even the state. So when it comes to all of these alphabet um, groups, they have no authority. They have no power, but we don't know that. Um, now, in Federalist 42, which I highly recommend that you read, it goes into um, some of the, the ideas of the commerce. It says, the second class of powers lodged in the general government consists of those which regulate the intercourse with foreign nations to wit, to make treaty, treaties, to send and receive ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations to regulate foreign commerce, including a power to prohibit after the year of 1808, the importation of slaves and to lay an intermediate duty of $10 per head as a discouragement to such importations. I wanted to read that because the lie of the 1600 uh, people in the BLM is that this country was formed so that we could keep slavery forever. And that is not the case. In fact, uh, James Madison was saying, we want to get rid of it completely by 1808, but if people insist on doing it, then $10 a head needs to be uh, collected for every slave they import. So they were trying to make it ex too expensive to get slaves and to discourage slavery in this country. Unfortunately, it did not uh, work. The states are to regulate commerce within their boundaries. They're the ones that are supposed to have um, things that make our water clean and our land clean. You know, we don't want to be like a third world country where trash is everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. But that was not the federal government's job. That is the state's job. Uh, now, Richard Henry Lee in 1785 said, you know, sir, that the spirit of commerce in a spirit of avarice or greed and that whenever the power is given, the will certainly follows to monopolize, to engross, and to take every possible advantage. I am free, therefore, to own that I think it both safest and best to give no such power to Congress. So he felt that the generality of the Constitution and these clauses in particular was a really bad idea and that because of greed, the federal government would seek to monopolize, engross, and take every possible advantage which they have done. The phrase to regulate trade must be sought in the general use of it. In other words, in the objects to which the power was generally understood to be applicable when the phrase was inserted in the Constitution. So what Madison is saying to Joseph C. Cabell is that the intent of the drafters is what matters, not what the Supreme Court says today, not what politicians tell you today, not what people teach today. 
the drafters knew exactly what they said. They wrote it out over and over and over, and they gave the reasoning behind every single clause of the Constitution. So it doesn't matter who puts a spin on it. The only interpretation of the Constitution should be from the drafters. It's like the only interpretation of the Bible should be from the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing. So the intent of the founders is what matters. Um, he then goes on to say, Remember, to explain and define the general terms of the power delegated to the federal government, not to imply a generalized authority beyond the enumeration. So the regulation is not to confine or to restrict, but to encourage commerce. In other words, the states will get along, so commerce will be prospered there. We will have commerce with foreign natures, nations, therefore prospering America. That's what it was for. So why do we have it? Well, to preserve the balance of a trade in favor of a nation ought to be the leading aim of its policy. That's Alexander Hamilton, uh, Continentalist Number 5. So common tariffs, common trade practices, common support of domestic products. So again, it was to prevent injustice between the states. Like I said, the federal government has knowingly abandoned the intent and the nature of the Constitution, and they have actually become what the anti-federalists anti feared they would. Subsidies, grant money, etc. are all abuses of the two clauses and have altered the psyche of the American people into believing that we have an unlimited and undefined federal government. Um, so I want to read what Madison said. He said, if Congress can employ money indefinitely to the general warfare, welfare, so putting you know, money to whatever, he says, and are the sole and supreme judges of the general welfare, they may take the care of religion into their own hands. They may appoint teachers in every state, county, and parish and pay them out of their public treasure. They may take into their own hands the education of children, establishing in like matters schools throughout the union. Hmm. They may assume provisions for the poor. What? They may undertake the regulation of all roads other than postal roads. In short, everything from the highest object of state legislation down to the last, most minute object of police would admit the application of money. and might be called, if the Congress please, a provision for the general welfare. Well, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? They've done exactly that. The only solution is to return to the proper understanding and application of the Constitution. We should expect our government officials to do this. If they don't, we need to get them out. We also need to educate people, especially those running for government, of what the Constitution says and how it limits their power and what the state's power is and quit, and quit taking payoffs from the federal government and fear losing them if you stand up for states' rights. So James Wilson said, the power of the Constitution predominates. Anything, therefore, that shall be enacted by Congress contrary to the Constitution will not have the force of law. So we need legislators, attorney generals, sheriffs, anyone that will stand up and say we're not following these things anymore because they're contrary to the supreme law of the land, which is the Constitution. Now we live in a kingdom ruled by Congress and the Supreme Court that is contrary to it. So the trade-off is this. If we want a limited, indefinite, defined federal government, and we'll have freedom. 
If we want free stuff and services from the government, then we must accept slavery because that's exactly what it is. Servitude. Stuff would be free, but the people are not. And by the way, we know nothing is free. So it's not going to be quick. It needs to be local. So share this video. Encourage people to watch it. Um, and by the way, the supremacy clause of the, uh, of the law of the land, which is Federalist number 78, is um, that any law made contrary to the Constitution carries no force of the law. That the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, not that the federal government is. Okay, I want to finish with this right here. So, um, real fast in Federalist number 72, um, and again, or 42, and again, it goes into the, um, the states and how they were kind of fussing with one another and the coin and all that. And that's why they have the um, cl Commerce Clause. But listen to this. It says, if were it doubtless to be wished, the power of prohibiting the importation of slaves, slaves had not been postponed until the year 1808, or rather they had been suffered to have immediate operation. But it is not difficult to account either for this restriction on the general government or for the power in which the whole clause is expressed. It ought to be considered as a great point gained in favor of humanity that a period of 20 years may terminate forever within these states of traffic, which has so long and so loudly upbraided the barbarism of modern policy, that within that period it will receive a considerable discouragement from the federal government and may be totally abolished by concurrence of the few states which continue the unnatural traffic and the prohibitive prohibitory example which has been given by so great a majority of the union happy would it be for the unfortunate africans if the equal prospect lay before them of being redeemed from the oppressions of their european uh, brethren and he also said some people you're not gonna believe this they were saying that the slave trade was um actual beneficial immigrations from europe to america that's and most of those were Democrats, by the way. If you look at their history, they were 100% against freeing slaves, uh, civil rights, etc., in their votes. Um, but that was the spin. Well, this is beneficial immigration. Hmm, sounds like today. So uh, this country was not formed just to keep slavery uh, indefinitely. Part of it was slavery. The importation of slaves was supposed to be phased out in 1808, and it wasn't. And I wish it would have been because we wouldn't have gone to a civil war. So anyway, um, I, I know it's a little bit long, but I really wanted to get into this welfare clause. And I'll just say there's no condemnation to people that are on food stamps or that have subsidies. I get it. But I will say, as soon as you can get out, please do. Uh, me and my husband, when we first married, we had food stamps. He made 5000 a year. Um, but... The church's job is to feed the poor. So it's going to take a cooperation of the people understanding what the, uh, the Constitution says. And it's going to take the people of God actually doing their job. And then when we're doing our job, the government will lose its power of doing our job. If that makes sense. All right. Well, I am so proud of myself. You know, I finally got the urgent education in. So I'm going to go finish a, a, a little bit of work, go to the gym. Me and the hubs are having a date night and get some Mexican food at Juanitis. If you're ever in Clovis, you need to go to Juanitos. That's what it's called. I call it Juanitis. And um, another good one is Mamacita's Bandolero Brewery. Good, good, good stuff. Um, but
but I will be doing the heavy revy this week as well. Super excited. I can't wait till we get into the nitty gritty. So have a great uh, rest of your day and I will see you again this week. Small is a new big. God is shifting from the current church structure back to his original intent and design, the ecclesia. The ecclesia is the original word that was used when Jesus was describing that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it in Matthew 16, 18. In fact, most of the time when you see church, it's actually ecclesia. The ecclesia is his ruling government on earth made up of two or more. It's a noble or Go to churchshift.me. That is churchshift.me.